Well, if you've got your Bible with you tonight, and I hope you have, or your phone, or whatever you call these other things that they're using in this generation, we're turning to the book of Joshua and the 23rd chapter. Just before I read, I just want you to imagine that you're nearing the end of life's journey, but you're actually given one final opportunity to speak to people you know, people you love, people that you are concerned for their spiritual well-being. What would you say to them? That's exactly what's happening here to Joshua in the last two chapters, 23 and 24. He's seeking to encourage, challenge God's people. This is his last shout, you might say. Joshua 23, reading from verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old, well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For is the Lord your God who has fought for you? Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west, Mediterranean. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. You shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep as we were hearing this morning in the children's talk, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And we'll end there at verse, at verse 13. Just a wee prayer just before we turn. Father, thank you that you are the great circumstance as the mountains are round about Jerusalem you are round about your people we acknowledge that tonight and we thank you that you're a speaking God and when we open your book you want to say something to us give us ears to hear a mind to understand and a will that will say yes to all the will of God. 
This is our prayer tonight. And we pray in that great name we've been singing about, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may or may not be familiar with this, but the last two chapters of the book of Joshua record Joshua's farewell address to the nation of Israel, in particular the leaders, but not just the leaders, to the whole nation. The book of Joshua begins, as you know, Joshua taking over from Moses. Then it comes right through, and here he is, he's at the end of his ministry, he's at the end of his life. Just like the Apostle Paul, in that letter he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Joshua has reached the point in his life where he could so easily have said, as Paul did, you remember, I fought the good fight. I finished the course and I've kept the faith. He knows... He's an old man now. He knows that his death and departure, his exit, his exodus from this life is imminent. He knows that. And he also knows it's the end of an era. His departure is going to usher in an opportunity for the people of God to make a new beginning. If you read the last two chapters, he's got many things to say to them containing his farewell address, but I would submit to you that here, in chapter 23 and in verse 11, in many ways, he sums it all up in a sentence. You can look at it. A sentence that's not without warmth, but it comes across with a challenging warning note in it as well. What did he say to them? Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God sums it all up. If you have an authorized version, King James translation, he translates it, take good heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Now I think it would be easy to think that this is a rather strange thing to say to these people. Don't you think? Of all people, and at this particular time, in this particular place where they are, be very careful to love the Lord your God. I mean, in the light of all that God had done for them, even in the recent past, never mind the distant past, surely that's inappropriate and unnecessary. Quite remarkable that it should speak like this to a people so blessed, so privileged over so many years, a people like people in Scotland with a history and a heritage second to none. These were the people of whom God would later say through the prophet Amos, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. These were the people that God referred to in the book of Isaiah as, dare I use the word, Israel, my chosen. In the book of Jeremiah, he says specifically of these people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Surely in the light of their election and their redemption and now their substantial possession of the promised land and the ongoing plan and purpose of God, surely, surely it's superfluous for Joshua to say to them of all people and to their leaders in particular, be very careful to love the Lord your God. I mean, these people have been riding on the crest of the wave. 
They're not scraping the bottom of the barrel. They had entered, conquered, and possessed the promised land. It had been allocated to the twelve tribes, but as a wise old owl, it's highly likely you know that Joshua saw trends appearing amongst the people of God during the final days of his earthly life that were not God-honoring. He probably saw things going on all around him that deeply concerned him. As he looked out and listened, as he saw and heard, as he pondered and prayed, he discerned that all was not well amongst some of them. Metaphorically speaking, he heard alarm bells ringing. He saw red lights flashing. And from the box of experience, and he's had a lot of experience, it's all in the box, from the box of experience, he knows that people can change, you know, with the passing of time, and not always for the good. I don't know for sure why he spoke these specific words, but I do know that they come from the lips of one of the greatest and godliest leaders ever in the history of Israel. And I also know that the next book in the Bible, literally as well as chronologically, is the book of Judges. And if any of us know anything about the Old Testament, you'll remember that the recurring note concerning the behavior of God's people in the book of Judges was this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the striking significance of these words, be very careful to love the Lord your God, mustn't be overlooked. When I was a student in Edinburgh, Dr. Alan Redpath was the pastor at Charlotte Chapel. He used to go to hear him preach. It was a great privilege for us as students to go sit at the feet of Alan Redpath. But he also preached a series of sermons on the book of Joshua in the middle of the last century. And he said this about this text, verse 11. He said, if I could choose the subject for the last sermon I ever preached, this would be my text. Why did he say that? Because Alan Redpath knew in his day, as Joshua knew in his day, and as you and I surely know in our day, that it only takes one generation, two at the very most, that's all. And with the passing of time, things can change very quickly. Truth can be replaced with error. You don't believe me? Next time you're in Edinburgh, go up to Giles Cathedral. John Knox used to preach there. I wonder what he would think if he were to sit in the congregation today. Things can change. Light can be replaced with darkness. Freedom can be replaced with bondage. Order can be replaced with chaos. A confident hope can give way to total despair. One generation. Two at the most. John Carson puts it better than I can. He says, even after times of spectacular revival, reformation, or covenantal renewal, the people of God are never more than a generation or two away from infidelity, unbelief, massive idolatry, disobedience, and wrath. 
Without being overly melodramatic, what he's really saying is this. Let's earth all this. What he's really saying is this. Church buildings that once were filled can soon be empty. Buildings where the lights were never off are never on. Spiritual movements can end up as stone monuments. Fruitful lives can become fruitless. Useful lives can become useless. The doors can be closed. Now I hope this is not the last sermon I will ever preach. But it's a text I want to bring to you tonight. And in doing so, I want the text, to quote Jim Packer, the evangelical Anglican, I want the text to do the talking. You know, one of the greatest, richest, profoundest letters ever to be written to a group of Christians is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote round about AD 60 to the people of God living in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. In the first half of the letter, I don't know when you last read Ephesians, but in the first half of the letter, his exposition of the doctrines of grace is simply masterly. And in the second half of the letter, the way that the Apostle Paul practically applies the doctrines to everyday living in the world, in the family, in the church, in the gathered church, can hardly be better. The church founded in Ephesus was a great church to be part of. It really was. It had a high standard of teaching, high standard of doctrinal understanding, high standard of living as far as the Christian life is concerned. But it's more than interesting. I find it frightening that in the first of the seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor, recorded for us in the book of the Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, written before the end of the first century, it was the church in Ephesus that had lost its first love. One generation from when it had been formed. I find that scary. Now when you read that letter, you read it in Revelation 2. They still hated evil in that church. They still hated ease in that church. They still hated error in that church. But they didn't love the Lord as they once did. The greatest danger facing the people of God in every age and at every age as we live out our brief lives in this wilderness of a world is for you and me to lose our love, our first love. You know, when I was first converted and the plate as it was in those days was handed round, I would have jumped into the plate if I could. Never mind put in a couple of shillings as it was in those days. Would I do that today, would you? It's so very possible to fall away, to turn away, to walk away from a goodly heritage, to throw away the gathered treasure of a lifetime of spiritual experience, even in the closing stages of our earthly life. That's why Joshua said what he said to these people. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. It reminds us that Christianity is an awful lot more than knowing certain things. It is knowing certain things. I hope you're a reader. I hope you read the Bible through once a year even. I hope you read good devotional and theological books. But Christianity is an awful lot more than knowing certain things, isn't it? 
It's an awful lot more than believing certain things. It is believing certain things. But it's an awful lot more than that. It's more than doing certain things. Of course it's doing certain things. But it's an awful lot more than that. What is it then? It's essentially about experiencing at a personal level the love of God in the gospel and then for the rest of our days returning and reciprocating that love and expressing that love wherever we go. The Apostle John sums it up with these words. We, as God's people, love. And we love him because he first loved us. The God who chose to love us wants us to choose to love him. Have you heard of Leonard Ravenhill? I wonder if you read Why Revival Tarries. Leonard Ravenhill was a great evangelist in the last century. He crossed the Atlantic a number of times, and when he crossed the Atlantic, if he was able to do it, there were two people he used to go and visit, Keith Green, the great singer, and A.W. Tozer, the great preacher. One time when he was visiting Tozer, he said to Tozer, he said to Tozer, you know, I have found many people in your country who like God, but I have met very few who really love him. Now, we're not dealing with secondary issues here. We're dealing with something that is very primary. What God requires of us, all of us, is encapsulated in the Jewish Shema that you read in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That should at least be our aspiration, if not our achievement in this life. And I say that is what God requires of us because in the New Testament, didn't Jesus underline that very statement when he summarized the Christian faith? These were the words he used. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's not some kind of an appendix that you add on to your life, but it's not really essential. It's everything. It really is everything. It's not about keeping rules. It's not about going through rituals. It's not about jumping through religious hoops. It's not not about making appearances at church on Sunday. It's about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a love relationship. That's biblical Christianity. You tell me if I'm wrong. You're not a Christian here tonight. You need to hear that. And if you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of that. Can I say it gently to you, but rather firmly? If you don't love him, now look at me, if you don't love him very much, I doubt if you really know him. When I was a young Christian, I went on Operation Mobilization, went to France, with 30 phrases in French, trying to evangelize the French. But they sent me to Alsace-Lorraine where half the population spoke German. So I had 30 phrases in French and I learned one phrase in German. Ich bin mit einer Gruppe von jungen Leuten gekommen, die sich an einem Kruzstück mit guter Literatur beteiligt. Wir gehören verschiedenen Konfessionen an, aber wir alle glauben, dass die Heilige Schrift das beste Buch in der Welt ist. That's all in you in German. George Verwer used to say to us, everything 
minus love equals nothing. You and I have got the greatest message in the world. The only message that can make a difference. What I want to do tonight, there's no five points tonight, so you don't need to worry about your five fingers. There's just three points. By way of application of this text, and I shall be very brief, there's no point in writing a letter, is there, if you don't put an address in the envelope? Who are these words for? You might say, yes, well, they were for the people in Joshua's day as he saw the trends. And I would submit to you the God who spoke then wants to speak now through these very words to all of us in this building. What is this text teaching us? Be very careful to love the Lord your God. What is it teaching us? It presents us, let me be very simple now, with the challenge to be different. There aren't too many people around today who can be described as lovers of God. Luke, when he wrote his gospel, he wrote to someone called Theophilus. Theophilus means someone loved by God, or it could be translated a lover of God. And I ask the question, are you a Theophilus? I'm not asking you a Baptist. Are you a Theophilus? Do you know that you're really loved by God? And do you, in response, really love God? Or does that language come across as being over the top? O-T-T, a wee bit uncomfortable and a wee bit embarrassing. The world wants to squeeze us into its mold, doesn't it? The culture wants to squeeze us into its mold. Neither the world nor the culture will ever give up trying to woo us, seduce us, persuade us, tempt us to be lovers of self, lovers of ease, lovers of leisure, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of stuff, lovers of anything except being a lover of God. I think it was Mark Deaver who said, the core of sin is to love what is not God as if it were God. That was the problem at the end of the day with a man called Demas. Have you heard of him? He was one of Paul's team, well known by some of the greatest saints who have ever lived. Paul said to, had to say about him one day, Demas, Demas, he's forsaken me. Having loved this present evil world. There came a time in the life of Demas, and it didn't happen overnight, when he began to see the world as a playground instead of a battleground. How do you see it? Israel's track record, the history of the people of God down through the ages, underlines this very problem. It keeps on recurring. How many of us tonight are sold out to God to such a degree that we have a jubilant pining? We want to know him better. We want to know him more. This Christian life is meant to be a more and more experience as you get older and you get grey hair. Not a less and less experience. Is that our experience? You won't find any lovers of God in the world. But the big question is, how many of them are to be found in the church? Have we got to go back to the Covenanters? Have we got to go back to the English Puritans? Have we got to go back to the French Huguenots? To find people who are passionately in love with their God? 
Go back in your mind's eye for a moment to when Jesus put the question to Peter. You remember? He put it three times. Maybe it was because Peter had failed the Lord by denying that he ever knew him three times. Maybe the preachers are right. He denied him three times. So Jesus asked the question three times. What was the question? Do you love me? Now I know that there are different words for love in the Greek that are used in that text. I wouldn't want to read too much into that point before you give your answer, but just think of Judas for a wee minute. He was one of the twelve. He heard all Christ's sermons. He saw all his miracles. He gave the impression that he really loved the Lord, but what did he do? He sold them for 30 pieces of silver. And how did he betray him? With a kiss. The very symbol of love. He kissed the one who was the door to heaven and he ended up in hell. Judas. The poet puts it better than I can. It may not be for silver. It may not be for gold. But still by tens of thousands is this precious saviour sold. Sold for a godless friendship. Sold for a selfish aim. Sold for a fleeting trifle. Sold for an empty name. Sold for the awful bargain none but God's eye can see. Ponder my soul the question. Will it be sold by thee? Jesus is asking you and asking me the same question he asked Peter three times. Do you love me? Have you come to a point, has the Spirit of God brought you to a point where you can actually say without feeling embarrassed, I love you, Lord. What does that mean? One of the things that will be true of the person who can answer the question in the affirmative is that it means that person will be different. Stand out from the crowd as being radically different. It will mean not being cool, not being popular, not being the flavor of the month, not being one of the crowd. It will often mean not going with the flow, even in some professing Christian circles. The text presents us with a challenge at the deepest level to be different. I don't mean a puritanical fuddy-duddy. But I mean different, radically different, distinctive, standing out, salt, light, different. Others may be rude and crude and unkind and ungracious, keep a record of wrongs and be unforgiving, but you can't. Because you love the Lord. Here's the second point. This text, don't you think it presents us with a challenge to be vigilant? It doesn't say, be careful to love the Lord your God. It says, be very careful. It doesn't say, take heed to yourselves. That you love the Lord your God. It says take good heed to yourselves. What's Joshua doing? He's underlining. He's emphasizing human responsibility. 
In other words, he's telling us that this is not going to happen unless by the grace of God we make it happen. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience a revelation. Isn't that how it was told to Peter? Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience a revelation leading to a revolution in the depths of their being. It's sometimes explained in terms of coming out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a statement that is. Passing from death to life. I mean, in any language, that's radical terminology. It's called regeneration in the Bible, being born again. We receive a new life. We become a brand new person on the inside. There's a new dynamic at work in our lives. And it has brought us into this love relationship with the Lord. And it's that relationship that must be maintained and sustained with the passing of time as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. What Joshua is getting at in this verse is that if this fire is to keep burning brightly rather than cool down and burn low, we will need to be vigilant and we will need as God's people to make right choices. He wouldn't have said it if there was no need for it, brothers and sisters. Friends in this meeting tonight? John Bunyan, you got to mention this morning, let's mention him tonight. He draws our attention to this in Pilgrim's Progress. He takes Christian on his journey into interpreter's house. Some of you will remember this incident. He paints a picture, Bunyan does, for us in interpreter's house to help us grasp the truth of what he wants us to learn. He pictures the devil. Yes, there is the devil. Don't forget him. The devil, he's throwing water on the fire, burning in the heart of Christian to try and put the fire of the love of God out if he can. That's the picture. That's the context. But Bunyan goes on and he also tells us that behind the scenes, behind a wall in Interpreter's House, the oil of Christ's grace is being channeled towards the heart of Christian to help him see how he can keep the fire burning. And that's where the battle is won or lost day on day. Now don't misunderstand me. If God has lit the fire in your heart or mine in the first place, that fire will never go out but it can burn guy low. So what must we do? We must learn to avail ourselves of the means of grace so that on a daily basis we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that we say no to sin and yes to him. We must take time to sit at the feet of Jesus as Mary did and listen to his voice. We must see to it that our devotion to him is not replaced by our service of for him, as was the case with Martha. Now, I love those scriptures, and I'm sure you do too, that dwell on his love for us. Peter and Paul have much to say about this. You know, the love of God for us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Peter was talking about that love, he reminds us that we, he's talking about us as Christians, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Which is a reference, actually, to God setting his love upon us, not just before we were born, but before John Calvin was ever born, before John Knox was ever born, before John Wesley was ever born, before the universe was born. Amazing texts. And Paul, what does he say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about that. 
Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not things present, not things to come. Nothing can... These are tremendous texts. But both these men, if you read their writings carefully, they also tell us in no uncertain terms, in their own language, that we must learn to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that requires effort on our part. It's our only reasonable response to his great love for us. The one thing we must never do is to let go and let God do it all. That is not what the Bible teaches. We are to wrestle and fight and pray. We are to make deliberate, responsible responsible choices and not always between what's good and what's bad, but between what's good and what is best. And if we don't do that, the chances are that sooner or later, are you listening, you'll end up a Demas. You might even end up a Judas. By the way, we need to come to the primary interpretation of Revelation 3.20. I just discovered a few months ago, I know there are many people who have come to faith in Christ through Revelation 3.20. You know that text? I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him, sup with him and he with me. John Stott, the great John Stott, was converted through that text at a camp, at a youth camp. And that's fair enough. But that text was not written for sinners. It was written to the church. What was being said in the text was, you can be in the church and you're going through all this and all that and all the next thing, and where's Jesus? Is he outside the door? Or in our lives as individuals? We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing the next thing. But where's Jesus? Is he in it all or is he out there somewhere? Think on that. When you read this text, be very careful to love the Lord your God. It's presenting us with the challenge to be different. Yes. But it's also presenting us with the challenge to be vigilant. By God's grace, as the Holy Spirit enables us, we are to be vigilant. We're in a battle to the finish. Here's the last thing. This text also presents us with the challenge to be obedient. See, where the rubber hits the road, that is exactly what this text is really teaching us. It's calling us, as the old hymn puts it, to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What is the love that he is referring to here? The love that's mentioned here is certainly not some kind of sentimental slush. It's not nice feelings, at least not all the time. It's not the feel-good factor. It's not having the fuzzies inside. We're talking here about gospel obedience. Jesus said, correct me if I'm wrong. If you love me, he says, you love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't that what he says? Love without obedience is meaningless. Some years ago, I read through the autobiography of Professor F.F. Bruce, the great brethren scholar. When I was first converted, some of the old men in the church in Wishaw, they encouraged me to read biographies and autobiographies, and I've been doing that for the last 50-odd years. But I was reading Professor F.F. F. Bruce, his autobiography, and I have to be honest and say it wasn't a very inspiring read. But when I start a book, I've got to finish it. My wife's the very opposite. If she starts it and she doesn't straight go the royal in the first chapter, she just hands it over to me. But I, I've got the, it's not a spiritual thing, it's just the way I'm made. I read the book through and I got this gem. 
love to God and obedience to God are so completely involved in each other that any one of them implies the other. That is very true. In other words, you can't think of the one or do the one without the other. But I think Augustine, the 4th century, Saint Augustine of Hippo, modern day Algeria, he, he put it beautifully when he summed up the Christian life. And I must confess, when I first heard these words, I thought, well, that can't be true. But it is true. This is what Augustine said. He said, love God and do what you like. That sounds rather dangerous, doesn't it? But when you think a wee bit deeper and see what he's really saying, he didn't say, make a decision and do what you like. He didn't say, get baptized and do what you like. He didn't say, join the church and do what you like. What did he say? Love God and do what you like. What Augustine was really telling us that if you really love the Lord, then what you will like to do, what you will want to do, will be what God would like you to do and what God would want you to do. He was absolutely spot on. In other words, you'll want to obey him, not in order to be saved, but to prove that you've actually been saved. John the Apostle, he's a black and white man. He fires from the hip when he writes, doesn't he, John? He's a black and white man on certain issues. He tells it as it is. How does he put it? We know that we know him, says John in one of his letters. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, if you read the last two chapters of Joshua through, you'll see that Joshua warned Israel and what he said about continuing to do those things, those acts of disobedience, those acts of partial obedience, those acts of compromise, those acts of convenience that could so easily, he says, become traps and snares and whips for your backs and thorns for your eyes. But he knows the remedy for all of them. He knows we can avoid all of them. He tells us it can only be if we are very careful to love the Lord our God. And that can only be if we're willing to be different, if we're willing to be vigilant, and if we're willing to be obedient. If we do that, then all the possible stumbling stones in life will become stepping stones to a richer, deeper, fuller life in God himself. Or if you prefer John MacArthur's comment, never throw God the bone of your love, he says, without the meat of obedience on it. That's how MacArthur puts it. But Jesus even puts it better. He says, didn't he, to a Jewish audience? He says, if God your Father, you'll love me. That's how he put it. I finish with the words of the German theologian, Johannes Tyler. He put it like this. As the bridegroom to his chosen, as the king unto his realm, as the keep unto his castle, as the pilot to the helm, so, Lord, art thou to me. As the fountain to the garden, as the candle in the dark, as the treasure in the coffer, as the manna in the ark, so, Lord, art thou to me. As the ruby in its setting, as the honey in the comb, as the light within the lantern, as the father in the home, so, Lord, art thou to me. As the sunshine to the heaven, 
as the image to the glass, as the fruit unto the fig tree, as the dew unto the grass. So, Lord, art thou to me. Are we anywhere near that? Be very careful, brothers and sisters. I speak to myself. I'll not tell you my age. I told you it this morning. Don't be telling anybody else. Keep it a secret. Whatever age we're at, that's the only safe way to go through this life as a Christian. Be very careful to love the Lord your God.